probably isn't a more controversial topic, is there, perhaps other than Brexit, than um, gender in our culture today. Uh, you only need to flick through the BBC News app for a few minutes to see that there's lots of debate, lots of confusion, lots of anger uh, when it comes to this particular topic. Uh, in the last few months, if you've seen, um, Paula Radcliffe and Martina Navratilova have come under fire for suggesting that gender distinction should be maintained in sporting events. Uh, last year, Bristol University attempted to ban any speaker uh, that, ident- that said that identifying as a woman was not the same as being born uh, as a woman. Uh, the question of male and female and whether there are any fundamental differences between the two is an emotive one. It's a hotly debated topic in our culture today. Sadly, that means that the church, the Bible, and passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 are seen as at best outdated and irrelevant, and at worst, narrow-minded hate speech. But as Christians who believe in the authority of the Bible, that all scripture is God-breathed, we need to grapple with passages like the one we've got this evening. We need to resist the urge to skim over bits of the Bible just because we don't like them. We need to resist the cultural pressure to be embarrassed about parts of God's word and so never really talk about them. And instead, we we need to remember that God speaks to us through his word. And so just as with the rest of 1 Corinthians, as we've gone through, We need to see, first of all, what Paul was saying to the Christians in Corinth. And then we need to see what he's saying to us here this evening in Chessington. So let's pray now that God would help us to do that. Let's pray again. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. Father, thank you that it cuts against not just our culture, but every culture. That is because it is not just man's best thoughts about the world, about life, but it is your revealed truth, the creator speaking to his creation. And so, Father, we pray this evening that we would listen to you, we would listen to your truth, and that you would change us by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you can remember, we're in the middle of a section in which Paul is tackling particular issues in the Corinthian church. In chapters 8 to 10, he he spoke about the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. And we saw, didn't we, that whilst that might have been a particular problem in Corinthian culture, there are still underlying principles that apply to us in our culture today, whether or not we have idol temples and feasts. And the same is true when it comes to chapter 11. Paul is addressing a particular cultural issue. The issue about what to wear in church. And so at one level, this is a cultural issue. But just like chapter 8, it isn't just a cultural issue. Just as in previous chapters, Paul wants us to see that there are fundamental, fundamental principles that apply to every culture, whether in Corinth or in Chessington. And so before we get to the particular issue or practice that Paul's addressing in this section, we first need to see the big principle that he wants us to understand. That principle is, 
that headship is a good thing. Headship is a good thing. Verse 2, Paul begins by praising the Corinthians uh, for the things that they are doing well. But then he swiftly moves back on to where there might be some problems. And so verse 3, he says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. As we've just said, this is a particularly controversial topic in our culture. Uh, Paul says that men and women are fundamentally different, and that man is the head. It's worth pointing out right from the off that if you have an ESV in front of you this evening, you'll know that it says in verse 3, husbands and wives, rather than men and women. That would seem to make better sense of Paul's argument in chapter 11 and the way that he talks about headship in other parts of the New Testament. But focusing in on husbands and wives, as I think Paul does, doesn't necessarily remove the controversy, does it? Because whatever the context, the word that people take real issue with is that repeated word in verse 3, head. It comes up three times. And again, there's a bit of variation as to what that word might mean. Some say it means source, like the head of a river. Others suggest it means representative, like the queen is our head of state. And both of those might have elements of truth in them. But when you look at how the word head is used most often in the New Testament, you find that it's referring to a position of authority. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, Christ is described as the head of the church, the one with authority over the church. And so when in chapter 5, Paul then goes on to say that the husband is the head of the wife, will both imply a position of authority. And that's where people get upset, isn't it? That's where people begin to have an issue with what Paul is saying. Because we don't like the idea of authority or submission. It's something that our culture is pretty opposed to. And so whether it's referring to marriage or the church or any other area of life, something in us reacts badly to this idea of headship. I think that's often because we might have a wrong understanding or have had a wrong experience of what headship should actually involve. You see, in verse 3, Paul wants his readers to realize that this idea of headship, of authority, is actually a really good thing, far from something to be embarrassed about. And he makes that argument, first of all, by pointing to Christ. He says, look at Christ, verse 3 again. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Paul says, forget what the culture tells you about headship, and instead, look at Christ. What do you see? Well, again, in Ephesians, we see that Christ is the head of the church. And the way that he exercises that headship, that authority, uh, is not to serve himself but is by laying down his life for the sake of his people. When we look at Christ's model of headship, we see a picture of sacrificial love. And so, Paul says in Corinthians, men are called to be the head. 
But that doesn't mean they are to be domineering or oppressive or self-serving. No, they should look to Christ as their model. Which means headship should involve husbands laying aside all personal rights, all freedoms for the sake of their wives. It should mean dying to all selfish ambitions and desires and instead doing everything possible, everything in their power to ensure the godliness and growth of those they've been given the responsibility to lead. Husbands, Paul says, are the head, which by implication means that wives are called to submit to that headship. And once again, Christ is the model for this. Look at verse 3 again, end of verse 3. The head of Christ is God. Christ, the Son, willingly and joyfully submits to the authority of the Father. We saw that a few weeks ago, just before Easter, didn't we? When we saw Jesus pray to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. At the start of John's Gospel, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of my Father. Christ the Son submits to his Father. And in doing so, he shows us that submission isn't a degrading or demeaning thing. Despite what our culture might say, it doesn't imply inferiority or inequality. That's not the case within the Trinity, and so it's not the case within marriage. Christ is fully God, equal with the Father. Yet he submits. He entrusts himself to the loving authority of his Father. We'll come back to this idea of equal but different a little bit later on. For now, I hope you can see, though, that Christ shows us what true headship and true submission looks like. He is the model when it comes to these things. It's also worth noting here that when it comes to this idea of submission, it isn't just for women. Both men and women are called to submit in different ways. And so the challenge for all of us here this evening is to think about what we're saying when we refuse to submit. If in our hearts we say, I can't, I won't submit, no one is going to be in authority over me, well, in some sense we are claiming to be better than Christ. We're saying, yes, yes, Christ submitted, but, but no, I don't have to, that's not for me. And so this is a challenge for all of us. Paul says, look at Christ, and you will see that headship and submission are good and essential things. Look at Christ, and secondly, look at creation. Look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7 says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Uh, the language in those verses, it might seem a bit odd at first. But Paul's big point there is that God created humanity with an order. Uh, one particular, one person I listened to, this, uh, listened to on this earlier this week said it's a bit like building a house. When you build a house, you do it in a particular order. 
First, you build the walls. You can't do much else until you've built the walls. But walls by themselves don't make a house, do they? For a house to be a house, you need a roof. The roof completes the house. And the Bible says the same is true when it comes to humanity. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that God created humanity with an order. Man was created first, then woman. Wolves, then roof. Which means this isn't a question of which is more important than the other. That would be a stupid question to ask on grand designs, wouldn't it? Tell me, which is more important, the roof or the walls? Which, which, which matters more? Well, it's a silly question, because both are equally important. Both are needed and need each other to complete the house. That's a point that Paul reiterates in verse 11. Both men and women are equally important, but that doesn't mean they are the same. A wall is not a roof, and a roof is not a wall. And this, the Bible says, is how God, in all of his wisdom, has created humanity. He has made men to be walls, created first, and with a particular role, to be the head. And he's made women to be the roof. Created after man, yes, but in order to complete and complement man. And so together, man and woman, walls and roof, bear God's image and display his glory. And so do you see Paul's big point, the principle he wants us to get at the start. He says headship is a good thing. It's what God is like. Look at Christ. And it's what God has made. Look at creation. That's the principle that I want us to see. And I'm happy to talk more to people after the service if you want to chat through that a little bit more. But next we need to see what that means in practice. And to answer that, we need to return to this Corinthian issue, the issue of head coverings. And Paul's big point when it comes to practice is that we should consider our culture. Consider your culture. He says that we are to live out the biblical principle in whatever way our culture will understand. We can see the cultural issue for the Corinthians there in verses 4 to 6, and again at the end in verses 13 to 16. It's all about what they should or shouldn't wear on their heads. And in verses 4 and 14, Paul says, it's a disgrace for men to prophesy and pray with his head covered, or with long hair. Uh, It's difficult to know exactly what was wrong with those things at the time. Ideas range from long hair suggesting homosexuality to male head coverings being a a common practice in pagan worship, uh, like down at the idol temple. Whatever the particular cultural issue, Paul's problem is that the practice of men having their head covered or or having long hair in some way dishonours their spiritual head, that is Christ, verse 3. In other words, their practice undermines the biblical principle of headship. I think we see that more clearly when it comes to the example of women there in verses 5 and 6. Just look at verse 5 with me. 
But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. You see, in Corinthian culture, married women wore head coverings in public, something like a shawl, to show that they were respectable, that they were no longer available. Um, A little bit like wearing a wedding ring, I guess. And so to be seen in public with a man, but without a shawl, without a head covering, signaled that, that the woman was available. And to have her hair down, well, that was to be like a pagan prostitute. And so if that's the case, if that's the, the cultural situation, then we can see why in verse 5, Paul says, it's every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Uh, to dress in a way that the culture would understand as sexually available would obviously bring dishonor to her husband, to her head. And so Paul says that if a woman is intent on doing this, well, they might as well bear the shame, the public shame of having their head shaved, a sign that they were guilty of adultery. The question that raises is why would the Christian wives of Corinth want to do this? Why would they uncover their heads and so give off this kind of impression? Again, answers aren't completely clear from the text, but some suggest it was an expression of their newfound freedom. That buzzword that we've been thinking about in Corinthians, freedom in Christ. Thanks to the gospel, these women had gained a right understanding of gender equality. That as Paul says in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. They understood their, new, their, their equality with men. In addition, these women knew that they could now play an active role in the church gathering. They were free to pray and prophesy, as Paul talks about in verse 5. And so perhaps this newfound freedom had also led them to stop wearing their head coverings as a, a further expression of that freedom. Others suggest that, well, that the women were simply conforming to the culture, uh, another issue in, in Corinth. A new generation of high-class women were beginning to rebel against traditional inequalities between husbands and wives. One of the consequences of that was that they had begun to cast off traditional respectable dress codes to make a statement about themselves, about their attractiveness and their independence. And so it's possible that some of the Corinthian wives were influenced by the culture and so had started doing the same thing in church. Whatever the motive, Paul wants to be clear that what they are doing is wrong. It's wrong because their practice was undermining the biblical principle of headship. And so verse 10, he says, It's for this reason, the reason of headship, that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. Again, Paul's choice of words might seem odd at first, but in the context of his argument, it seems that he's saying that because of this principle of headship, A woman should exercise authority or control over her own physical head. In other words, she should honour her husband by dressing in the culturally appropriate way. 
the biblical principle is that the husband is the head. And so in practice, that means wives should wear whatever communicates that in their culture. The practice should match the principle, not undermine it. Why? End of verse 10. Because of the angels. That confused me as much as I'm sure it did you when you first heard that read. And again, unsurprisingly, there's, not, there's, there's quite a bit of debate about that. It could mean that literally angels, supernatural onlookers uh, who watch all that is happening in God's church saw what was going on in Corinth. Or it could simply mean human visitors, messengers, worshippers who turned up to see what was going on in the church. Either way, the point is that it matters what you do. People see what you do, and so your practice matters. What you do as people, as a church, either supports or undermines the things that you believe. And so Paul says your practice should match your principle, not undermine it. Now, what does all of that mean for us sitting here in Chessington in 2019? I hope you can see, uh, first off, that when we consider the principle first, we see this is less about whether or not women should wear hats in church and more about how we should understand and express biblical principles in our culture today, particularly in the areas of gender and marriage. And so with that in mind, let me just suggest a few applications for us. The first is that men and women are different by design. Remember, a roof is not a wall, and a wall is not a roof. That seems obvious, but we live in a culture that is desperately trying to remove any sense of gender distinction. But when we consider the creation account in Genesis, you can go back, we preached on that earlier, uh, back last year. You can go back and listen to those. We see that to do that, to, to remove that distinction, goes against God's good design. And so Paul says, don't be shaped by your culture. Don't do away with gender differences. And I actually think there's an opportunity for us here. It's easy to feel like we're on the back foot when it comes to this issue of gender. But in a culture that is completely confused about these things, we have a chance to tell a better story. In the church, we have an opportunity to showcase God's beautiful design, to display his glory by rejoicing in who he has made us to be, and by recognizing appreciating and using our differences, not to serve ourselves, but to love and serve each other. If that's something that you'd like to think a bit more about how we can do that as Christians, as, as church family, then let me recommend two really great books uh, to you. One is called A Better Story, uh, God, Sex and Human Flourishing. We read this as a ministry team a really helpful way to help us think through how we can use uh, these issues of gender and sexuality as an opportunity to share the gospel, not just be on the back foot with them. Uh, and similarly, the plausibility problem uh, along the same vein. 
do grab those books from me and have a, a flick through after the service if that's something that you might be interested in. So that's the first point. Men and women are different by design. Secondly, men and women have different roles. In church and family life, Paul says men have the responsibility to lead. And again, we live in a culture of male passivity. It's a bit outdated now, but it's the Homer Simpson kind of picture of what it means to be a man or or a husband. It's dressed up as kind of lovable and slightly hapless, but in reality, it's lazy and self-indulgent. And so Paul says men need to step up to Christ-like leadership in the church and in the home. And women need to encourage men in this. And I think this is particularly important for how we speak to and about each other. Again, it's culturally common, isn't it, for men to speak down to or about women and for women to moan about men. But remember what Paul says. He says, what you do either supports or undermines what you believe. And that doesn't just include what you wear, it includes what you say. So men... Don't let your speech undermine God's good design by making jokes about women. You might think it's just a little bit of banter, but words hurt much more than we often realize. And little by little, those jokes undermine the value and place of women in the church family. And women, don't let your speech undermine God's good design. When you get together with other women, avoid the temptation to moan about your husband, however light-hearted you think it is. Don't undermine his attempts to lead by constantly criticizing or digging at him. Paul says, don't conform to your culture. Don't let your speech undermine the biblical principle that headship is part of God's good design. That's the second thing. Men and women have different roles. Thirdly, men and women need each other. This brings us back to verse 11, where Paul says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. As we think about all these differences between role and design, Paul wants to be very clear. Men and women need each other. And so, again, in a culture of gender wars, where both men and women can behave and speak as though things would be much easier if the other didn't exist. Paul says, no. No, recognize you need each other. The walls need the roof, and the roof need the walls in order to complete the house. Which means we need to be deliberate about recognizing, encouraging, and appreciating the things that our brothers and sisters in Christ contribute to the building of the church it is not the case that gospel ministry is for men and that women just help out where they can no paul says it is essential that both men and women work together yes with different roles but work together in building up the church and making christ known men and women need each other And so our practice as families and as a church should reflect that principle. 
Now, I'm sure that you might have all sorts of questions as a result of what you've heard this evening, as a result of this chapter. And as I say, I'm really happy to chat through any of those with you after the service. But as we close, I really hope you can see that just as with the rest of Corinthians, Paul wants us to be other-centered as we follow Christ's example. That means even as we think about who we are as men and women or husbands and wives, our focus shouldn't be on how we can use those things to serve ourselves, but rather how we can use those things to love and serve each other, how we can build each other up as we express those differences as men and women. And that as we do that, we would visibly display God's glory to a confused and watching world. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we've seen, Christ is our example in these things. But Father, we thank you as well that Christ is much, much more than just an example to us that in our selfishness and self-centeredness, we fail uh, to live for others. We fail uh, to live these things out. And so, Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus used his authority to lay down his life for us. Thank you that he submitted to you, his Father, and carried out that salvation plan in order, in order to win people for you. Thank you that Christ isn't just our example, he is our saviour. And so, Father, we pray that we would trust in him and that you would help us to be like him as we live out these things. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing now, as we've just prayed, that Christ is more than an example in these things. He is the the perfect example, the one that does these things for us. Uh, And so our hearts, as we respond to him, should be filled with thankfulness as we then seek to live for him. So... In 1 Corinthians 11, we've seen this evening, hopefully, that headship is a good thing. That's what Paul, the principle that Paul wants us uh, to grasp. And one of the areas that that applies is to his marriage. And so with that in mind, I've asked uh, Dave and Claire to come and talk to us a little bit about what this principle uh, of headship and submission might look like in the day-to-day in their marriage. And we're going to start with Claire. Uh, Claire, we, I, say I started, I guess, by saying that this might be a a controversial topic, a um, topic of submission, particularly something that our culture doesn't like and that, kind of, I guess, by nature, our hearts don't like. Um, could you tell us a bit about how you thought about that whole idea in the past, how you've come to what you think about it today? Um, yeah, go for it. Sure, I think um, when I was thinking about this question, there were kind of three things that kind of sprang to mind. Um, I think the first thing was that I was in the very privileged position to have this played out in front of me growing up. So... Um, My mum and dad were a great example of that. Um, I think they'll be the first to admit they weren't perfect in it. But, um, yeah, I saw it played out in my growing up years. And therefore, I suppose I didn't have a a negative experience of what headship and submission might look like in marriage. Um, I think heading off to uni was where I did a lot of my big grappling with scripture, with asking um, big questions about stuff, I suppose, when you've grown up in one church all your life you kind of just go along with what you're taught and then you get to another context and you realise there are lots of views on some of the things that you've just always assumed everybody thinks the same about. 
And so I think I did a lot of my thinking there. Um, yeah, I think certainly wrestled with scripture on some of this stuff, um, grappled with it, read some really good books um, that were helpful, chatted to a lot of people with different opinions to mine and sort of worked through it um, in that way. And yeah, again, came to the conclusion that scripture was clear um, and therefore any battles that I had with it were kind of things that I needed to submit to Jesus in. Um, and I think third thing was then, um, so that was very much the theory. Obviously, yep. there was no kind of practical at that point. <laughs> um, and then we did our marriage prep with Bobby and Julie Warrenberg um, coming up 11 years ago. Um, and yeah, I think that was where it kind of really hit. Okay, this is now, <laughs> this is now practical. Um, Bobby had us read a really helpful book called Reforming Marriage by Doug Wilson, which is um, pretty hefty, particularly for the guys. And I think it was actually really helpful for me to say, okay, actually, this is really weighty. Because I think our contact, con- culture kind of makes it look like headship is the, the, the way you want to be and submission's the rubbish bit, yeah, yeah. you know? Um, and what that book made me realize was, whoa, that's heavy. That's weighty. I'm pretty glad I'm not in that position. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think that was kind of really helpful then moving into marriage and then kind of trying to work out the practical side, I suppose. Sure. Uh, and on that, so on the, on the practical side, you, you come to the conviction that the principle is a, is a good thing, headship is a good thing. Um, what does that look like for you in practice, day to day, in your marriage to Dave? Um, so I think a lot of the time it's just getting on with life. Yeah. Um, I think that um, where it kind of hits is when there's maybe we have a difference of opinion. That's mm-hmm. when it kind of really hits. So in a lot of the day-to-day when we're just getting on with life, it's kind of very much like... I mean, yeah. so there'll be things like Dave tends to lead our like family devotions uh-huh. and stuff like that, kind of yeah. leading our family on the spiritual side of stuff, I guess. But um, I think where it really... You know, where you sort of really hit the issues is when you maybe have a big decision to make or a small decision and you have different opinions. Um, and so I think that's where it kind of... Yeah, we, we have found uh, there have been times that we've done that well and there have been times that we've done that badly. Um, and I think it is, it's communication. And ultimately, it's, it's me then trusting that God's way is the best way. Mm. Um, so do I trust my husband? Even though I might disagree with him on this issue, do I believe, do I trust that he wants to honour God in this? Um, and therefore, can I trust that God's way is the best way? And submit to him in that and um oftentimes it's then been clear in the aftermath that that was the right way occasionally um it might turn out that my way might have been the right way but actually there's 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 blessing (laughs) there's blessing in and there's growing in (laughs) in working through that together and in um yeah I think I don't know. Does that answer yeah, the question? Yeah, no, that's, really, that's really helpful. And and you just said, so you just said they're being being convinced that God's way is the best way. So convinced that the principle is the the right thing then makes the practice, I guess, kind of easier. Yeah. O- on that, it, I, I guess in in a room with this number of people, there there might be people here that aren't convinced of the principle. So then that makes things tricky in terms of practice. What yeah. what would you say to someone that wasn't so sure about? the principle that we've just laid out this evening, maybe someone that is uh, newly married or, or about to get married and thinking through these things. Sure. What might you say to him? I think I would just urge people, as in all areas of life, to humbly come to Scripture and see what God says and be prepared to lay down your preconceptions and your ideas and cultural norms and experiences mm-hmm. 
and pray that the Lord would make it clear to you through his word what he's saying. And I think when we do that, then we're coming from a place of, I'm prepared to change my mind on this if this is what you want for me. Mm -hmm. But likewise, I'm prepared to be confirmed in my convictions if that's what you want for me. And I think if we're trusting it to Jesus and asking the spirit to, to reveal to us through God's word, then that's a great thing. Um, I'd also say if you get to that point where you are convicted, that maybe the way that you have thought before might not be what you're, what you're realizing from scripture, maybe because of experience. Um, I would just say like, find maybe some couples in the Mm. church that you think you can see it played out well and get alongside them and ask them to help you and ask them to kind of ask to just you know go along to the house have dinner with them see how it kind of works out in practical reality because yeah you want to be able to ground it in real life as well the 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 principle needs to work out in practice so yeah Yeah. really helpful And, and really helpful just yeah to point out that we don't have to grapple with these issues as individuals, we, we do it as part of a church family. We can, you know, as you do these things, talk to others um, and, and work through them with other people here. Um, on, on a slightly different tack, I, um, in the sermon sort of made the point that this, in some senses, is a way that we can uh, speak to our culture. Um, and so some of the things that we've thought about this evening would just be totally bizarre, the things that you've just said to, uh, to our culture at the moment, the way that w- w- you're talking about married life and things like that. I wonder whether you've seen or experienced any any sense in which this has been an opportunity uh, the way you do married life family life to to witness to non-christian friends any thoughts on that yeah definitely i mean i'll start off by saying we're definitely not we've definitely not got this nailed (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination um anyone who's spent with any time with us as a family will know that um i think yeah i think it's certainly an opportunity i think in a culture which says you you're in the marriage as long as you're happy Um, I think to be trying to live in a way that serves the other person first Mm -hmm. is quite countercultural and quite eye-opening. And I think a lot of it is very practical. It's not just kind of when you're together as a couple or as a family, but also in kind of the things you were mentioning before, like, um, you know, my background's in teaching, and I remember sitting in staff rooms and just the way that teachers talk about their spouses... Mm -hmm. (laughs) just being like, okay, I can be a witness here in how I talk about Dave and actually in how I, you know, support him and how I speak of him and, um, or how I don't speak about him sometimes, um, you know, can be a massive witness or getting involved in the gossip about husbands or whatever. I think that could be massive. Um, and I think speaks volumes and probably speaks louder than we realize. Um, but yeah, also I think just bring it back to when you do have questions about, because I think sometimes it can look like, you know, other people think, oh, you know, well, you're, it's easy for you, like you've got, you've got a good marriage, you've got a good friendship, and it's like, well, yeah, but marriage is, you know, it's two sinners coming together, it's complicated for everybody. Mm. Um, and actually I think it's about us keeping our eyes on Jesus, because ultimately if we're, if my desire is to submit to Christ, then submitting to Dave will come a lot easier. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, really helpful. Thanks. Dave, Claire has really pointed out that, you know, this whole kind of idea of headship and, and stuff is not by any means the kind of easy option. Um, so Ephesians 5, uh, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a pretty weighty thing, uh, like Claire said, uh, and a big thing for you, for, for husbands here. Um, again, just as with Claire, we, we were chatting earlier in the week and 
Claire made the point that um, I guess that husbands can make it harder or easier uh, for their wives to submit uh, by the things that they do, by the way they live out Ephesians 5. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the kind of practice, I guess, what, what sacrificial headship in the home, in the marriage looks like for you? Uh, go for it. It probably doesn't look like um, me (laughs) most of the time. Um, As Claire's alluded to, I've had some absolute howlers um, (laughs) in terms of Claire being great at just following a terrible decision. Um, Many have ruined um, her day at the beach because I just want to go home. Um, But we won't go into that one now. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... And the other thing, just to pick up on, and Claire mentioned it, that Doug Wilson book, um, I can't even remember what it was called, Reform, Reforming Marriage. Um, that was amazing, as Claire said. But I have to say, it nearly kind of put me off wanting to get married. It was, you know, so definitely have a read of that because it's very countercultural. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, answer the question now. Um, this is what happens when you stick a mic in front of me. Um, c- uh, communication, I guess, so yeah. just trying to communicate things or decisions um before so sometimes i think as blokes we think that our, our you know our, our partner our spouse uh, that they know what we're thinking but yeah. they they don't so we need to kind of communicate that and guys might not always be the best at doing that so actually um just communicating that and then not plowing on with um said decision whatever it it might be um i think also just like with most things it comes back to being prayerful uh, yourself um, and your own walk with the Lord, being prayerful uh, together as a, as a couple. Um, and then just practically, it might, and again, I'm not always good at this at all, but, you know, just there have been times where I have spotted that Claire's been particularly tired or weary or whatever. So it's just then uh, making the decision that actually I'll get up in the in the morning and and deal with the, the kids and things like that. So that might just be a way in which um, you can be sacrificial um, as, as, as the head of, of the house um, and yeah. the family as well, I guess. Sure, helpful. And Claire alluded to this in terms of, I guess, leading family devotions and things, but this principle of headship extends to your family, your, your, your kids as well. Um, we thought about this morning about the responsibilities of uh, families, husbands, fathers in, in teaching their kids about the Lord Jesus. How, how do you see the, that headship principle playing out to family life, not just, not just married life? Yeah, again, I think you, you alluded to it in the, um, as, you, as you were speaking this evening, but the, the Homer Simpson sort of image and that kind of passive, um, just sitting back and just playing the role of observer so kids are kicking off and it's just very easy to just watch that and just continue to watch that and think oh this is actually quite fun watching it and then think oh whoops I'm supposed to step in here and and back Claire up and 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 you know sort of take a take my role seriously in that so that would be um an area because despite the fact that, you know, many people seem to tell us that, oh, your kids are so well behaved, and they're really not. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it, that's one of, the, I think, the, the major areas with kind of small kids, I guess, for us. Yeah. Um, and then I, I think Claire mentioned this, but just taking a, a lead again spiritually so that oh, Claire's so capable. Um, she could 
do a Bible study or do a devotional with our family far better, far more creatively. She does good accents with voices and plays all the different parts. She's just better than me in (laughs) pretty much every way. But it's making sure that I'm intentional in in thinking about that. So as we're sat around the table, it's not Claire kind of giving the nudge and, oh, should we do table talk now or whatever the thing is, that actually I'm thinking about that in advance. And actually... That it's not. I don't need to do everything in in when we're reading the Bible uh, at, at table time, at meal times, or or in the evening, or um, etc. That, that that we can do that together. We can you know bounce ideas off each other. But that I'm actually thinking about that, uh, thinking about the spiritual well-being of of myself, Claire, and then and the kids and. I think it's it's so important actually you do it's it's not looking after yourself uh, but but actually if you're not feeding yourself how on earth are you going to be able to encourage your your spouse or how on earth are you going to be able to teach your children so it's so important I think as as guys we just need that wake up call to do that and then I've you know I think the other thing is I've just got there's some good guys around us who model that well, yeah. and also some good guys individually who are just brilliant at either just sending you kind of texts and reminders and, you know, just sharpen you. Uh, and, and those those people are, you know, gold dust, really. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, guys. I, we spoke earlier, it is a really difficult thing to, to sit out the front and be asked, so how do you do this stuff really well? Um, and it's, it's a difficult thing, yeah, to, to answer um, without, like Dave said earlier on, sort of blowing your own trumpet, I guess. But, um, but I would, as Dave just sort of ended on there, I would really encourage you to, to talk to each other about it, to, to not have that kind of British culture thing where we don't want to say, look at me, like Paul says, as I, as I follow Christ. We can be models to each other and we can look for models in the church as well in these things. We can encourage and be encouraged uh, to live more like Jesus. There's, there's a good thing in that. Uh, do, do chat to, to these two um, after the service. If you'd like to do talk to me, um, do look out for people that, that you think, yeah, I, I'd like to, to do family life or, or married life like those guys and, and, and talk to them uh, about it. Um, we uh, really need God's grace in every area of, of the Christian life. We, uh, as these guys have said, we need it when it comes to, to marriage, to, to parenting, to church life. Um, we're going to end our time now by singing a couple more songs that remind us that even when we mess up, even when we're completely selfish and flawed uh, as individuals, as couples, as members of the church, uh, that God's grace is there for us, uh, that he loves us and he sent his son to die uh, to pay for those mistakes that we make um, in following him.